It's time for Cadillac on Call on News Radio 610 KOMA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac on Call, here's Jim Hall. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cadillac on Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation. And as we put the end to the month of November, we continue to pay close attention to virus activity related to respiratory illness in our community. And it comes in the form of flu. It comes in the form of RSV. And actually, we'll also be monitoring the COVID rates that are happening in our community as well. So as we get ready to move into fully the holiday season following Thanksgiving, we wanted to bring Heather Hill on to give us an update on where we stand in the community. And Heather, I know uh, the new acronym is RSV on top of flu and on top of COVID, but what's the most pressing concern as we begin our program tonight? I think as we look at our our data, which we do on a daily basis, uh, we look at emergency room activity, hospitalizations to give us a key, some key indicators as to what the activity is in our community. And once again, as we look at our local data, we are still seeing that increase in flu activity, uh, visits to the emergency rooms for influenza, and the same thing holds true for RSV. We continue to see that increase in rates of visits for RSV-related illness, as well as admissions um, because of RSV. Now, COVID, on the other hand, is continuing to decrease. But um, again, we we really need to remember that COVID is out there. It is still circulating in our community. And majority of people are just doing at-home tests. So we don't get a lot of data as far as um, exact positivity rates like we were, say, a year ago. But I think since we know it's still out there, we know people are still seeking care for COVID, it's something we can't let our guard down on as well. And all three of these viruses are transmitted the same way, respiratory, you know, hands touching, eyes, nose, mouth. So we need to do the same mitigation strategies for each of these. Now, with RSV in particular, I know we've talked about this for a number of weeks now as it has worked its way not only throughout the country, but uh, ultimately I know Western Washington first, and now it's gotten much more prevalent in our area. But it was mostly impacting, I know the concern was with children, but is it running across the age groups as well? Maybe focus first on what's the children's situation with RSV right now? You know, the pediatric situation is the one that has us the most concerned because um, little children really do struggle sometimes when they do get this virus. But you're exactly right. It can infect, you know, totally across the age span. And your elderly people with heart disease, lung disease, uh, compromised immune systems, it can be problematic for them as well. But back to focusing on that pediatric population, um, we really want to encourage parents to keep a close eye on children who have respiratory infections, monitor their temperatures and how they're breathing and and some of the indicators that your child may be really struggling with this infection is if you're not able to get that fever down. You just cannot get that child's fever down to um, somewhere closer to normal. And you really look at how they're breathing. Are they are they really working hard to breathe? Are they using their shoulder muscles or chest muscles really to pull that air into their lungs? Um, are they coughing? Are they listless? 
uh, unable to feed. Oftentimes, infants, that's the first indicator that they're ill, is a child who usually feeds from bottle or breast just fine, may really struggle and seem very tired or uninterested in eating because it takes a lot of energy to breathe and it takes a lot of energy to, to nurse. And so oftentimes that baby just may not be feeding quite well enough as usual, and that can be an indicator that you need to probably give your doctor a call. So when you do give your doctor a call, I know, um, is, it, is, is, is this a virus, RSV, that we're talking about? Is it something that comes on fairly quickly, or is it something that you can, hey, I'm, I'm worried about this, and maybe I, I'm better to act now with my provider than maybe wait a day or two? When you have a child, especially a very young child, who's starting to show symptoms of of hoarse, scratchy throat, has a cough, is starting to show the difficulty breathing, congestion, that's when you really do need to reach out to your physician, especially in, in the very young children under the age of four, and get some advice as to what to do. Because it's not recommended that you use the typical over-the-counter cough and cold medicine in this population. You have to be very, very, very careful what you actually are giving that child for their comfort. And you need to talk to the medical provider about what's best to do for your child. Those typical cough and cold decongestants are not what we want this population to have. To clear out those um, nasal passages, we really do encourage those little bulb suctions that you get from, you know, the, the nursery when you bring your home, your baby home from the hospital. You want to help get those nasal secretions out. You want to use the cool humidity in the room so that child does have humid air to breathe and keeping them hydrated as much as possible to keep those um, respiratory fluids as thin as possible so that they can clear it by themselves. And I was going to say, I, I know at the height of COVID, that was that 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 challenge was when do you go to the hospital? And I'm sure it's the case in this instance. But when you're dealing with infants and especially children, you know that the error is on the side of going to the hospital. But you know, obviously, right. I know that places strains on the hospitals. What 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 should a parent do in order to hopefully not require a trip to the hospital? Right. Start with your primary care provider, your pediatrician first, and and do some of the things that I just talked about to try to give your child some comfort. And then certainly use the many walk-in clinics that we have in our community. We know that they're being strained as well, but that's the next step. But honestly, if your child is starting to show blueness around the lips, maybe the, the fingernail beds are looking a little dusky, they're really struggling to breathe, and you cannot manage that temperature. That's when you probably need to consider going to an emergency room. Unfortunately, all of our hospitals across this area, our mid-Columbia region, are facing you know, potentially long waits in the emergency room because they are just so very, very busy right now with all kinds of illness, particularly respiratory illness. And flu, I was reading some data that you had shared with me that now it, it understand, I understand in our state of Washington, and you touched on it at the top of this program, that, that there is high incidence of flu. Right. The Center for Disease Control publishes a map, and the, the worst situation is when your state turns a very dark burgundy red, and Washington State has hit that 
So that's an indicator to us that Washington State is at extremely high rates of influenza activity. We may leg the west side by a couple of weeks, but it is very quickly catching up here to what exactly the west side is experiencing and has experienced as well. So it might be similar to what we've seen with RSV, that it it starts on the west side and, and works its way this way, but they're listing the entire state as a as a concern area of concern. That's correct. And that's why it's so important right now for us to get our flu vaccines on board for us and our children, our grandparents. Everybody should get flu vaccinated and get that COVID vaccine or that booster or that bivalent booster that you're due for. Because if you can help prevent severe outcomes to COVID or influenza by getting vaccinated, and if you happen to catch RSV that there is no vaccine for, you're going to do better with just one infection than perhaps catching both RSV and flu at the same time or RSV and COVID at the same time. A final question before I let you go, and that's on, you had touched on it briefly, is is the over-the-counter medicine that you can give to your children. What What's a takeaway message for folks when they're wanting to help uh, help their children feel better? Read the label. Look at the age that it's intended for and meticulously read the dosing because you need to use the, the droppers or the device that comes with the medication to dose them correctly. Don't just use that spoon out of the drawer. You could overdose a child very quickly. They have, they're little, they don't carry a lot of weight, and if you overdose them, you can have some pretty bad outcomes. So before you start using over-the-counter meds, run it by your pediatrician, read the label, make sure you're using age-appropriate, and don't use adult version over-the-counters on children. Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. As always, thanks for your time. Lots of useful information on the Health District's website at bfhd.wa.gov. And also relative to flu, the CDC has a great website, too, at cdc.gov. Back with more of Cadillac on Call right after the You're listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Here again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Cadillac on Call presented by the Cadillac Foundation. And we want to spend a little bit of time tonight acquainting you uh, with some of the elements of cancer care and cancer treatment in our community. There are so many different ways to treat people when they receive a diagnosis of cancer, and it varies, honestly, from patient to patient. Some people require radiation on uh, therapy. Some people require chemotherapy. Some people require both. Uh, some folks, uh, unfortunately, require surgery. So we wanted to bring uh, to the program tonight Dr. Sherry Zhao as a radiation oncologist with Catholic's Tri-Cities Cancer Center. And Dr. Zhao uh, is, is a specialist in the radiation oncology side of things. And first of all, Dr. Zhao, thanks for taking the time to be with us. I know it's a busy time in your world, but maybe for our listeners, why don't you begin talking about what role radiation oncology plays in the treatment process of someone diagnosed with cancer. Sure. Thank you so much, Jim. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about things that I am obviously very passionate about. Uh, So to answer your question, there are three main modalities to treat cancer. Um, Surgery, 
chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And I think out of the three, radiation is probably the least well understood amongst most people, including a lot of physicians. Um, so the way that we do things is we we treat the cancer locally. Uh, I, I tell my patients that it's sort of like surgery without the cutting, um, but it's not a treatment that goes throughout your body like chemotherapy does. So the side effects are going to be very localized to where the tumor is. So radiation, obviously, folks uh, relating to the Hanford legacy of the Tri-Cities um, are familiar with radiation and, and probably how it works. But but when someone has a, a regimen or a, a treatment plan that includes radiation, I know it varies from patient to patient, but in general, what would that require? Yeah, that's a complicated question because there are many different forms of radiation as well. Um when when we think about radiation, you know, the concept that most people are familiar with is exposure, um, just background radiation and being closer to a site like Hanford. Um, but you can actually give very large doses of radiation when you're targeting not the entire body but a specific location. Um, the main way that we give radiation is by using something called a linear accelerator, uh, which is a huge machine that essentially creates electrons that turn into photons. Um, and that's what we use to treat the, the cancer. Um, the, the way that the radiation beam works is that the machine delivers radiation from all different angles while rotating around the patient. And so the doses uh, converge on where the tumor is, and that gets high doses of radiation. There is, of course, some dose going to the normal organs, but we have very complex techniques that we can use these days uh, with greater computer technology and also much better imaging modalities um, where we can spare a lot of the organs from radiation that we want to protect. And that is something that developed, I would say, in the last 20 years or so. So the concept that you know, people have of radiation back in the 70s is very different from what we do these days. And how the patient weathers it, does, has that changed for the better too? Tremendously. Um, I would say even, maybe even more so than um, the computer technology that allows us to create much more complex treatment plans that, you know, a human simply cannot. Um, the emergence of CT planning um, and guidance has really uh, helped that case. Back in the day, um, we did most things on x-rays, and you would have to basically cut out a lead block corresponding to the areas that you want to block and essentially um, aim a beam from the front and the back, maybe from the sides as well. Uh, whereas these days, the, the beam can really deliver radiation um, at an infinite number of angles as it, it is rotating around the patient. And at the same time, there are huge lead leaves um, that constantly move while the beam is rotating. So that, in addition to just the beam approaching from different angles, it can also modulate the intensity of the beam as it's moving around. Interesting. So if, if someone, and again, I know you, as you touched on it, the treatment plans differ, but a, a basic treatment plan for radiation, is it is it like 
folks could come in daily for a period of five or six weeks or more? Yes. So the conventional way to deliver radiation was smaller doses per treatment. And the thinking behind that is that cancer cells have a hindered ability to repair themselves, which is why they tend to turn into cancer in the first place, whereas normal cells have a much better ability. And so if you give low doses of radiation on a daily basis, you're basically allowing the normal cells to repair themselves in between the treatments. So it's supposed to be more efficacious against cancer. Um, We've evolved as a field as well. Um, So there are other technologies that we use. One is something called stereotactic radiation, and it's being more and more widely used for different cancers. Um, It's where you deliver high doses of radiation with pinpoint precision and a sharp dose fall off around the tumor. And again, you know, we're able to do this now with better technology. Um, And that can be as few as one treatment and uh, up to about five. And that would be delivered every other day. But you're right, the the conventional way of delivering radiation would be daily treatments for about five to six weeks. Fascinating. And I'm sure, uh, you know, there are so many elements of, of, of a treatment plan for someone diagnosed with cancer. I'm curious, how did you, when you decided to become, first of all, a physician, decide to move toward radiation oncology? Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting field. It's not a, a very common field that even medical students get exposure to. Um, I actually found out about it through a friend, and I'll admit the initial attraction was the, the interesting technology, you know, cutting-edge research. Um, Cancer is uh, something that is very well-studied and gets a lot of funding, luckily. Um, So if you, um, you know, like being on the edge of research and constantly learning, it's a a terrific field. Um, When I managed to do a rotation in it, I really loved how much time we get to spend with patients. Um, We can, you know, even over an hour with a patient in one encounter, which is pretty remarkable in the field of medicine, and you really get to know these patients. Um, I also just find it very beautiful and poetic that we're curing cancer with light. Um, Mm. And (laughs) there's just so many things I I really like about the field. I think you can also really excel as a physician, um, not just being a good good clinician uh, or knowing the data, but also... Um, if you know more about physics and radiation physics and biology in particular, you're able to provide more individualized treatment plans with patients. Um, and, you know, just a lot of neat things about the field, such as being able to um, really read your own scans. Uh, that's another thing that I aspect that I really love about it. Now, we have just a minute before we have to go to a commercial break, but I'd like to, before, before I want to spend on our next segment a little more about your background, but before we do, maybe to set up that a little biography uh, segment with you, Dr. Zhao, a little bit about you, you migrated or you, you zeroed in on the radiation, to pardon the pun, the radiation side of the cancer care, but had you, when you went to medical school, did you, were you always planning to, to do something relative to taking care of people with cancer? Uh, not at all, actually. Um, <laughs> I was actually an art major in college, and um, I ended up working for a biotech company sometime after. 
Um, and that's really what drew me to medicine. Um, but I, I didn't have a great sense of what exactly the type of doctor I wanted to be. Well, we'll have to come back in a moment because I, I, I'm curious now, how do you go from an art major to an <laughs> oncologist? Because it's a fascinating, maybe just uh, give our listeners a little bit of a 20-second uh, uh, tee-up for the next segment, if you would. Sure. Um, so the the company that I worked for uh, during that interim was really neat. We looked at um, creating novel antibiot- uh, antibiotics from bacteria that had never been cultivated before. Um, and so we would go through you know, thousands of bacteria, find um, hundreds of compounds, and maybe hope for one that ended up being successful in some way. Um, so at the time, I really felt like even though my, my day-to-day life was pretty interesting, I wanted to see more of the you know, direct connection between what we were doing in the bench sciences and how that actually ended up helping patients. That's what drew me to med school, and we can talk after your commercial, Jim. Awesome. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Dr. Sherry Zhao at the Cancer Center right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Cadillac uh, On Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation, and we're visiting with Dr. Sherry Zhao, a radiation oncologist at the Cadillac Tri-Cities Cancer Center, and a fascinating discussion, just a little bit about your background and a little more detail on radiation oncology. Uh, Dr. Zhao, if you would, you were an art major, and now you're an oncologist, and you touched briefly a little bit on what led to that transition once you chose that uh, the, to get to med school, talk to us a little bit about what goes in the, the training, the amount of schooling and education and training that's required to become what you are today, uh, to, taking care of cancer patients. Sure. Um, so med school is four years. I actually had a great time. Uh, the first year, we learn about the normal processes of the human body. The second year, we learn more about pathologies and abnormal things that can happen. And then the third and fourth years are more clinical. Um, after that, I did an, an internal medicine intern year. Um, I really wanted the experience of having you know, complex um, medical patients with a lot of um, you know disease processes that are going on at the same time to take care of because I felt like as an oncologist, you, you need that sort of background. And then I did um, four years of uh, radiation oncology residency, so in total about nine years. And where where did you do your training, and, and what brought you? How did you end up in the Tri Cities? Is is it close to where you have been, or are you are you a an official <laughs> transplant? <laughs> <laughs> well, I did all of my training on the East Coast. Um, I went to med school at University of South Florida, followed by residency at. Best Israel Deaconess in Boston, and then um, residency at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. Um, what really kind of drew me out here, um, my, my husband took a job uh, out here, and um, I visited a few different practices, and <laughs> the Catholic Tri-Cities Cancer Center, I, 
I'm, <laughs> I promise I'm not biased here. It really is a special place. Um, everybody I met was extremely mission-driven. Everybody has the goal of taking care of the entire patient and not just, you know, the cancer treatment part, but the four pillars of the Catholic Tri-Cities Cancer Center is early detection, prevention, survivorship, in addition to the treatment. Um, I just really, it's very palpable as soon as you walk in how much the staff cares about the patients. And we also have just an incredible group of patients as well. And a little bit, if you would, we, we touched on the role that radiation oncology plays, but there are so many elements to a treatment plan for someone, regardless of what type of cancer they're diagnosed diagnosed with. And is that part of, again, the, that that specialness that you talk about, the ability that you, you need to have a, a cohesive team so that when, you know, obviously when somebody gets a diagnosis, it's a shock. And so you want to make sure that that, that, that course of treatment is as seamless and as uh, patient-focused as possible. Is that the goal? Exactly. And, and that's a major um, important aspect that you brought up. Um, delays in treatment can be caused by not having a cohesive team. And, you know, here at Cadillac, we, we have tumor boards with everybody present. We have very involved physicians from uh, radiology, surgery, um, pathology, and obviously radiation and medical oncology. And at the facility itself, we have a dietitian, nurse navigators, social workers, palliative care, a really robust research team. Um, so pretty much everything a patient needs can be found on site. And you brought up an, an interesting term, and I and I know we have focused it from time to time on this program. And that's the term of called a tumor board. For our listeners, explain what that is. Yeah, so it is where um, a group of us get together, and it happens at Catholic about. Well, it, it depends on which tumor board. Um, we have quite a few, but usually about once every two weeks, depending on the disease site, and. Um, we get together and talk about complex patients. And the point is to have a multidisciplinary discussion from all specialties involved. Um, you know, cancer treatment, like you said, is very individualized. And even for the same stage of cancer and the same type, um, one patient might be better off depending on things like, you know, anatomy and performance status and their wishes as well, obviously. Um, they might be better off going to surgery or radiation, or chemotherapy, or some sort of combination of the three. And so, when that when that treatment plan is, is set into place, you, you touched on that's where that that approach and that really, I guess, you know, comprehensive approach, including how that patient feels with their family, involving the patient patient's family in that care. Um, one of the areas I want to, before we let you go, I know one uh, type of screening that you're, you're hoping to really zero in on in the coming months and year is, is relative to uh, the diagnosis and treatment of lung cancer. Talk a little bit about that before we let you go. Yes, thank you. Um, so I'm, I'm very passionate about lung cancer for a few reasons. One, um, it really is the screening that makes the most difference in terms of um, deaths prevented out of all of the screening programs that we have. Um, it's also the most, one of the most recent screening programs that we have. And because of that, there's a huge logistical challenge in not just making sure that 
patients are getting screened, but also followed as well. And so um, what that entails is um, a low-dose CT scan every year. And a lot of times you pick up incidental findings, you know, nodules that are way too small to be characterized, and that involves having to track them. And so uh, at the Catholic Tri-Cities Cancer Center, we're approaching this um, using multiple ways. One is uh, we have a, a grant in conjunction um, with FCCA uh, on how to better screen these patients in a more of a community setting. Um, two, we're partnering with uh, a local clinic, Myanmar, to try to um, get more underserved patients because you can imagine this just like everything else, disproportionately affects certain populations. And those patients are often the ones who need the most in terms of screening. Um, and we're hoping to have a, um, an event at the Cancer Center sometime in January. Relative to screening for, for lung cancer. Correct. And, w- and what would that... who? who our listeners out there, we, you know, I'm sure people of all ages and backgrounds and whatnot, somebody's listening to that, who should, whose ears should be perking up that they may want to take advantage of this? So anyone who has a 20-pack year history of smoking, and a pack year is defined as the average number of packs a day somebody has smoked, uh, multiplied by the number of years. So for instance, 20-pack years could be smoking approximately one pack a day for approximately 20 years. Um, That's the main criteria. Um, Patients also have to be between the ages of 50 to 80. And if they quit smoking, they had to have quit within the last 15 years. And so what would would the next steps be if if they qualify, so to speak? Well, they should should go to their um, primary care physician and talk about lung cancer screening. Um, I will say that the, the general criticism of something like lung cancer screening is that it does lead to more invasive testing uh, should something be found that might ultimately not be malignant. Um, this is the case for any type of screening, um, and lung cancer is not any exception to that. But, you know, I would strongly encourage anyone who fit that criteria to talk to their primary care physicians about uh, undergoing a CT scan. Um, and one, once we, I'm hoping that we'll open up our screening program soon and we'll have quarterly screening events. And once that happens, um, people are free to reach out to us as well. One final question before we let you go. You touched on the specialness of, of the place in which you work. I know you just recently joined the foundation board of the Cancer Center's Foundation, and obviously it's because you believe in, in the mission of this organization, right? Just a quick uh, uh, final comment about that, because we're going to be talking with Liz McLaughlin, who leads the Cancer Center's Foundation, in just a moment. Oh, um, yeah, <laughs> Liz, Liz is, I will say, one of the reasons why I, I joined uh, the Cancer Center. She is incredible and dynamic and really cares about the patients. And I, I don't think that we could do as much as we did for the community without Liz and the support of the foundation and the community. 
Well, we sure appreciate you taking some time and sharing a little bit about your background and your passion for taking care of cancer patients, especially with radiation oncology. Dr. Sherry Zhao, a radiation oncologist at the Tri-Cities Cancer Center, the Catholic Tri-Cities Cancer Center. Thanks so much for taking the time, and we'll talk again soon. Back with more of our program right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. The community of the Tri-Cities area is kind of one of its own as far as the support that it provides in a variety of ways. And certainly in the healthcare community, it has shown itself in uh, many, many ways over the last three years during the pandemic. And what we wanted to do is share a little bit about some of the, the nonprofit foundations that are part of the healthcare world here in the Tri-Cities that raise funds through community support in support of the programs like you just heard about uh, at the Catholic Tri-Cities Cancer Center with Dr. Sherry Zhao, a radiation oncologist. And we wanted to bring Liz McLaughlin to our program tonight. Liz oversees the two foundations that Catholic provides. One is the Catholic Foundation, and the other is the is the Tri-Cities Cancer Center Foundation. And uh, two wonderful organizations doing great work, and especially probably Liz, I guess at this time, uh, that, that, that work and, the, and the, the community support has never been more important. It's just so important, Jim. Thank you so much for having me here today to talk about that. Um, you know, it's, it, as all of the financial challenges and um, the strain and the increasing needs on the healthcare system, philanthropy has such an important role to make sure that patients in our community really have everything they need to heal, get healthy, um, and stay well. And it, and it comes in many different ways, does it not? I know, you know, there are certainly visible facilities uh, throughout the Tri-Cities that are that have been community-supported uh, on the Cancer Center campus, on the Catholic Hospital campus, and throughout the Catholic community. Uh, there are others programmatic that, that provide tremendous support. Talk a little bit about the role that the foundation plays in that, because uh, it could be bricks and mortar, and it could be vital uh, safety net services that are part of this philanthropy effort, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're really here um, for the needs of the healthcare system that we serve. And so we work together with the executive team at the hospital, uh, with our providers, with our caregivers, to really figure out where philanthropy can make a big difference. So that can be something like our recent uh, Da Vinci robotic surgery campaign that's buying really critical equipment for the hospital. Um, but it also can be to help support, you know, patient navigation at the cancer center or our Healthy Ages program that impacts, um, you know, uh, older people in our community who are staying healthy and staying active. Um, so it really, it, it's a very, very broad um, support that we're able to give. And um, I think that because of that, we really are able to impact everyone, regardless of their financial situation, their insurance situation, their health situation. Um, at some point, everyone in this community will be touched by philanthropy and healthcare. And you touched on a, a project called the Da Vinci Project, and just a brief explanation of that. It's it's robotic technology that's used in surgery, and Cadillac, I know, has had one for a number of years, but there was so much demand for it 
There's been a desire to add an additional robotic uh, surgical technology to allow more patients to get this care and stay in the community for care? Yeah, absolutely. So the access um, is, is, is a great need we have right now for people to be able to um, access and, and receive surgery on that um, if their care um, would, would work. So, you know, for us, we look at it in two different ways. You know, the Catholic Foundation steps up because it's a, an important piece of our surgical unit at the hospital. And the Cancer Center um, Foundation also gets to partner because many oncology patients can benefit from that. And right now, because the demand is so high, you know, some people are having to wait for that care. And so that's another way that philanthropy can step in and make a huge difference to people um, just by making sure that that access is always there uh, for patients, regardless of what they need. And, you know, it's great for us, too, to be able to help support our surgeons and our surgical techs and our nurses who do that important critical work every single day, making sure that they have all the tools that they need. I really think that that's the beauty of nonprofit health care is, you know, we're not here to pay out shareholders. You know, we're, we're here to invest in our community. And philanthropy just has such a huge part of that. And really, on this Da Vinci project, it's about a $2 million piece of equipment, and the community has already invested. The Catholic Foundation, as you touched on, has already committed a $1 million toward that cost. And talk a little bit about the Cancer Center's role and how the public can be involved. Yeah, absolutely. This is a great opportunity if you're considering making a donation um, to improve the health of our community. This is a a place where um, your dollar is going to go a really long way. So the the Cancer Center Foundation has has stepped up and said for um, every dollar of the first $500,000 in community contributions um, through the end of this year, we're actually going to match it through our endowment, through funding from our endowment. So if you want to make a donation, $100 donation, $500 donation, $1,000 donation, um, if you make that between now and the end of the year to help support this Da Vinci project, we're actually going to be able to double that with that support. So your your contribution um, can go even farther. Um, and again, we never know any of us when we may need this surgical system. And to know that Cadillac has our communities back and that we're going to have um, the access to it because of these donations in the community, I think really means a lot, and, and, and your contribution can make a real difference. And if people want to get involved, I guess is probably the best way tonight to share with them is is social media. Everybody's social media savvy is through social media channels for both Cadillac and the Cancer Center's Foundation. Yeah, I think that's great. If you're on Facebook, go on there and like Cadillac, like Tri-Cities Cancer Center Foundation. It's the place where you're going to get the most up-to-date information about what we're doing, how we're investing your contributions, and really, honestly, how you can make a difference in the lives of patients in our community. Liz McLaughlin, the director of the foundations at Cadillac, the Cadillac Tri-Cities Cancer Center Foundation, as well as the Cadillac Foundation. Thanks so much for taking the time, and thank you for listening. Very insightful show tonight. We'll be back with more next week. Good night. Good night.